Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Steve Moriarty. G'day, Stephen. How's things? Good, Pete. Good. Number 50. Number 50. I want to get that in. Is this number 50? Wow. Where does the time go? So we're actually kicking off today a new mini-series. So we finished our mini-series on Warren Buffett. We finished our mini-series on the four Fs model that we use. So this new mini-series that we're kicking off is on the 10 best investment books that we've read. So uh, today, I think, Steve, we'll just do, I think, an overview or an introduction as to what to look for in a good book and how you should think about becoming a better read person. You know, I can tell you I've read a lot of books. Not all of them have been good. But I thought the interesting part, I think, Pete, is you often read books and you don't know where they fit in until you've actually developed a philosophy. But you haven't got a philosophy until you've read a lot of books. I thought between you and I, I always come back to this point, I'm 58, you're 43. So between us, we've got 100 years of experience you know, the idea of our coaching programs and stuff is to help people learn. And I think telling them about some books is a good way to start. Yeah. And hopefully we can short circuit that process a little bit. Um, yeah. I know these days there are, in fact, um, apps and uh, websites you can go to that just summarize books for you. I think the way to think about those, though, is really it doesn't mean you shouldn't read books. I think it, it can be a good way to mm. make a short list of books that are worth reading. Um, I think back uh, to the beginning of uh, my journey as an adult. I think the the very first book I ever came across on finance was uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Like a lot of people, uh, I think it came out in 1997. So I was still, I was still very much a youngster and it didn't necessarily at the time feel all that relevant because um, I hadn't even begun my professional career. But I, I think he, the thing I took away from that um, is a couple of things. Uh, one is that... Um, uh, books like that uh, can act as a trigger to get you interested in the concept of finance. I don't think it felt all that relevant to me at the time, but I came back to those ideas later on. But it also acted as, as a trigger to get me interested into reading other books. I think the other thing that I took away from that book in particular was if it had said something like, oh, you know, save 12.5% of your money and invest it in uh, an array of assets, and da, 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 like nobody would have taken a blind bit of notice. I think the important thing was that because it told a story and a narrative, uh, people like the, the concept of a story. It became phenomenally popular, sold millions of copies around the world. It, it's not that often that you get a book that crosses over from finance into the mainstream uh, we saw it uh, relatively recently in Australia with The Barefoot Investor by Scott Pape. Um, that was a book which uh, ostensibly about finance, but it crossed right across into the mainstream and it was the number one bestseller, uh, probably for similar reasons, because it, it had a story behind 
you know, it wasn't just dry finance. There was a story behind it. So I think um, those are the, the couple of the key themes, really. Uh, people like books that also help them with a the narrative and uh, instead of just dry numbers, but also if it can act as a trigger to get people interested in the concept of their finances and investing, then that can lead on to better things, I think, Steve. There's actually not that many read, people who read non-fiction in any great number. The thing about the barefoot investor is sort of, I suppose it's surprising in some ways because there's a lot of those sort of books out there, but for some reason, like you say, some just take off, you know, and it's usually more to do with the author than it is the content in a lot of ways. I find myself doing this a lot now. I'm buying books because people mention them on Twitter, you know, and I follow authors on Twitter and they mention other authors and I think, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go and have a look at that book. And then I, I generally buy them. So, you know, I've been reading for a long time. I, I, can't even, I was just thinking when you said the first book you read and I thought, God, I can't even remember the first book I read. <laughs> but um, I can't even remember the last. Um, but I know I've read a lot in between. It wasn't a security analysis in 1934 or something. No, no, no. I, but <laughs> Not that I, long ago. I, I can tell you I have read security analysis, um, all 800 pages of it. I read The Intelligent Investor and those sorts of things. And it's, we'll sort of talk about this later on, but it's actually beneficial to read those things. Part of it because it's historical and you get to understand history, which, again, we're going to talk about later on. But also, too... Because, like, for security analysis, for example, Ben Graham, you know, really seriously covers every part of investing, bonds, you know, the whole lot. And it is stuff that comes back to you later on when you're reading other books. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I think uh, trying to remember back to what I took away from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I I could barely tell you a single thing, except uh, I remember quite specifically uh, he said, well, the wealthy, they build businesses and they buy real estate. And I think in later books, he talks about uh, stocks and bonds as well. But you know, even if that was all I took away from it, um, you, know, it you has did pretty well. Shaped, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it has kind of, uh, you know, shaped the course of my journey. I think, it, but as much as anything else, it just led me on to an interest in reading other books. Yeah. And then as we'll come on to, there are some books that are uh, quite broad and they tell a story. Others very specific in terms yep. of numbers and an approach that you can follow and um there's not it's not that one is good and the other is bad really i guess um as charlie munger said never met a smart person who didn't read i think the idea is really just to get a broad coverage and eventually you'll develop your own approach and philosophy so uh, should we kick off then with um just as a first point steve what to look for in a good book um uh, you know because now, everyone will have a different approach, but um, yeah, what what should people actually be looking for when they're starting out in reading? You know, what what are the signs of what might be a good book and what might not be? Yeah, good uh, good question. I think it depends, I suppose, Pete, a lot on your personality. I'm a generalist, and what I mean by that is I, I've never been overly attracted to the the nitty gritty of balance sheets. You know, like you're an accountant, right? Whereas I, I did one semester of accounting and failed miserably. Yeah, I'm an account- I, I may be an accountant, not necessarily a very good one, but I am technically speaking an accountant, yeah. So, um, but, but what I, I'm a generalist, so what I did was when I started reading, I read very widely, and I still do, science, philosophy, human behaviour, 
evolution, all sorts of stuff. But what I found that was useful for me was because as I read more and more, I started to pull the disparate sort of parts together for an overall philosophy. And that, and again, is part of what it's being, being a type seven on the Enneagram. We're, we're very good at joining dots, whereas some people are very good at just the dot. So like you said, you've really got to think about your approach and what you want to do. So, you know, the, the hard part, I think, is if I can relate it back to when I started playing guitar, I wanted to play guitar and I sort of kind of wanted to play blues, but it took me about six teachers before I got one that went, right, okay, this is the teacher for me and this guy knows what I want to do. And I think part of that was, strangely enough, he had a system that he taught. And so it was really easy to follow. And so that I think the way to make a book to start with is you don't really know whether it's good or bad. I think really at the first 12 months or two years, particularly with investing, you just read everything. You just read everything and then you start to get a bit of an idea about what sort of suits you. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's worth mentioning, certainly when you're starting out, there can be a tendency to read something and think, oh, well, that's, you know, that's the way, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's the most recent book I've read and therefore it must be true, yes. 100% true and all of the time true. Uh, but I think back, I mean, when I actually started reading widely was actually because I went to university and I was studying economic history and industrial history and stuff like that. The thing is with history, you'll find that the perspectives change over time. You know, if I'm trying to think of an example, like uh, you know, World War One, the narrative was always the troops were basically uh, brave lions led by donkeys and yep. they're very brave casualties that were sent off to war by idiot generals. You know, and that was kind of, that was what we were taught at school, but it's only sort of later on in the 1960s when revisionism and revisionist history started that people were like, well, you know, hang on, you know, of course, the, you know, Field Marshal Haig would have made some big mistakes, but these were the most intelligent people of their time. Yeah. They were dealing with a whole load of things that were shifting continuously, loads of stuff that was outside of their control. And yes, they made some mistakes and um, there were unnecessary sorry, casualties, but it's a bit dumb just to say, you know, lions led by donkeys. That's, you know, and I think, that, you know, the thing to take away from it is that uh, things change, you know, more information comes to light, views change, you get different perspectives on the same events, but some fundamental truths remain. I mean, uh, even I've seen the same in cricket, you know, people say, you know, when uh, Don Bradman scored 300 runs in a day versus England, and people are like, oh, yeah, but today they just changed the field. It's like, well, I guess that that might be true, but yeah. on the other hand, you're talking about he was playing against um, you know the finest cricketing minds of the day, and I think if you know, it's a bit arrogant to say that we would have done something different versus people who'd paid for 25 years in those conditions. So yeah, yeah I think um, obviously there's no one fundamental truth when it comes to investing, and you've got to find you know, something in the end that works for you. And it might involve reading quite widely to begin with yeah. uh, before you realise what, what's the right way for you. Yeah, I um, I remember that just thinking that point you were talking about with revisionist stuff, you know, um, which is really relevant at the moment because, you know, with all the young people pulling down statues and, you know, for various reasons of people that, you know, they were racist or, you know, blah, blah, blah. The one interesting point, 
My favourite author is a guy uh, who's passed away, and I think I mentioned this before, Stephen Jay Gould, who re- wrote about uh, evolution, but he talks about statistics, a lot of it, and about how to use statistics, which tells you about how to think about history and you know distributions and all that sort of thing. He always said two things that stuck with me. One was he said, always go to the primary source. So if you read something, you should always go to the, the person who actually wrote it. Don't take it as an interpretation from, you know, Pete Wargent said, blah, blah, blah. Did he? Okay, well, go and find the original thing rather than take Moriarty's interpretation of Wargent. And the other thing was he said, which is really important for investing, is you've got to fit the, the context of the times. And like you say there about Bradman, what you will see in finance is these stories, which as Taleb has said, you know, we develop after the event, which is like you say, donkeys and lions, a bit like, oh, they were all idiots. And it's a bit like, yeah, because we already know what the result was. And so we've reinterpreted the decisions. But as Stephen Jay Gould said at the time, you can't predict the future. So you had to sort of look at those people making those decisions and their beliefs were actually a product of the times. And here we are 200 years going, oh my God, they're all racist. And it's like, well, okay, but they they didn't think it was racism 200 years ago. So you've got to put it in the context and that's really important in investing. Yeah, for sure. Well, World War One. they thought at the beginning of the war, they thought it would be won by cavalry. By the end, it was heavy artillery. Yeah, and- yeah. You know, there was the 100 days offensive and, you know, in the end, a successful result. So, you know, this is a red hot topic at the moment on primary sources because of books like Dark Emu. And, you know, people are saying, well, hang on, go back to the primary source. And, you know, I interpret it differently from the way that Bruce Pascoe has. And, you know, this is well outside of my bailiwick. But I do know from studying history that yep. two people can draw very different narratives yeah, through absolutely. the same sources. So, you've got, you know, you've got to, in the end, uh, come to your own conclusions on this stuff. So... On the concept of narratives versus numbers, um, Steve, I, I think um, you know there's there's a couple of different types of books, aren't there? I mean, I, I think of um, you get these uh, big sweeping books like Gladwell or Nassim Taleb that yep. might just make you think. Like I think of the Black Swan, I just very you know a big concept that just changes the way you view the world. And then you get other books that are very very specific. There was one years ago called the Sixteen percent solution and it was like very specifically how you invest in tax certificates or um just trying to think of a, a property market example well in the uk there was a a top selling book called buy low rent high uh, by a guy called samuel leeds and you know look at it, it's not it's not a strategy for me but it's very very specific and if you wanted to follow that approach that here are the steps these are the numbers this is how it works you know, Ooh. it's very sort of detailed <laughs> and focused, yes, and and very well done as well because it was straight to the point. I think quite often some of these books can take 500 pages uh, to say what could be said in a chapter. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess there's there's the whole uh, concept of numbers versus narratives, which it, indeed is one of the things we talk about in our coaching programs in the eight timeless principles, the, the importance of statistics over stories. So how does, um, I know you've, to have similar sort of anecdotes with relation to, for example, capital cycle theory yeah. and so on. So what do you think? I break it up now into, you know, I've been reading a while, but I break it up now into basically thinking and doing books. 
And both are important. It, and, you know, I hate to say this, but it always comes down to narratives and numbers and it always comes down to theory and practice. But I think generally in terms of reading, if you're going to start reading about investing, first of all, start widely, right? Read technical analysis books, read fundamental analysis books, whichever takes your bent, simply to give you an idea of what you want or, or what you like and what you don't like. Um, and you might end up liking them both, and there's no rule against that either. What I do now is say, is this a theory book or is this an action book? So is this a book that I read and think philosophically, a, a, a sort of broad picture stuff? Or is this the thing that says, you know, for example, we'll talk about one of my books that I'm going to uh, recommend is Buffetology, which is a doing book, which is, you know, do all, these, do all these equations and stuff to work out the value of a company. But then I would marry that with a book which is a, a thinking book, which might be Irrational Exuberance or, you know, The Most Important Thing by um, Howard Marks. So it depends on what you're looking for. But again, it's always a bit tough because, as, as I sort of said before, you don't know what you're looking for until you've read it and gone, that's not what I'm looking for. So in terms of like to what you were saying about capital growth theory, I meant to write before, was when you look at it, and this is what attracted me to, you know, for us developing the eight principles, was because a lot of the books I read were a little bit sort of time specific, you know, like, oh, yeah, it worked between 1990 and 1996, but it didn't do any good from 50 to 1990 or something. So that is, I think, where you've got to have a think about what you're looking for in the book. I think you have to sort of categorise in your mind, where does this book fit in for me? Um, therefore, you can then think about what you're going to get from the book, which is a broad philosophy. And then again, what that can do is that can then say, oh, OK, I need to go and read more technical analysis to see if this is actually true or not. Um, and, you know, that way you start to get a bit of a a bit of a feel for what you're looking for. Just on the point of the eight principles, Pete, that's where I think our book is quite good for the beginning investor because it's fairly general and you can read it and go, I really like this stuff about mean reversion. I'm going to read more about mean reversion and go down that path. Yeah, in fact, there are, there are some uh, uh, recommended reads in the back of the book. I, I think, yes, important point to, to plug our own book for one thing. But uh, <laughs> I, I think um, yeah, we're, all the, books, the we're all good books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> we're all That's bad right. books are sold. <laughs> the title of the book, Low Rates, High Returns, kind of implies that it's a book uh, for the yeah. here and now, which it is. But of course, the, the publishers were obviously looking for a book which helps people to have a think about how to invest their money at a time when interest rates were yes. low. But that having been said, um, it is really a book that is timeless because it is based yes. on eight timeless principles. And this is um, a point that people are endlessly trying to catch us out on this and say, oh, yes, but uh, yeah, you could have done better by doing X, Y, Z. The point of the eight timeless principles is that you could pick any period over the last 150 years or probably longer and the, the principles would still apply. I think that is the Absolutely. important point, is that they are principles that work at any time in any market. And it's not necessarily about getting the highest returns over any specific 12-month or 24-month period. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, um, it's a series of principles for making you effectively financially unbreakable. So I think um, even though it does appear to be a book on market timing, 
because it talks about what to do when interest rates are low is it's actually much broader than that. Mm. So let's come back to this question of what makes a good book then, Steve. I think um, the things I like to see from a good book is something that maybe challenges you. You think about a subject in a new way. Uh, some books are simply uh, motivational, like uh, some of the Tony Robbins type stuff. Others are educational. I, I generally like books that are thought provoking. Uh, in particular, I do like to read books that are based on actual experience and yeah. not just theory. I think there's an awful lot of people, you know, uh, who decide that they want to write a book and it's you know it's based on a lot of theoretical stuff, but it's not really based on them actually having been out there and done it. Um, I think in the business world. Uh, there's a book called um, How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis, which I really enjoyed. And I think the thing that really resonated with me is that it's not it's not based on trying to flog you a book so that he can make money from selling books. It's based on that you know, this is how you act. If you actually want to build a startup business, you know, this is how you do it. It's going to be very difficult. doesn't try and sugarcoat things. You know, and I, I think that's for me. That's what I like to see is some real world experience, and it's not just based on theory. Yeah, I think so. I think um, you know, it's a bit of a tough question. What makes a good book? Because it was, and, and it's interesting because I was looking at a book a couple of weeks ago about one of the classics. You know, like I think it was a Greek philosopher or something. Anyway, one bloke wrote um, one review was five stars. This is a top book. You know, fantastic, and talks about it for about five or six paragraphs. The next review was, this is absolute garbage, crap, you know, wouldn't buy it, it's tosh. And I thought, well, do I believe the guy who wrote five stars or the guy who wrote one star? Um, so my advice for people buying books is just buy it and, you know, make up your own opinion. But in terms of what you look for, I think really, to give you an example, Fortune's Formula, which is going to be one of my picks, so don't flog it, Pete, <laughs> is um, the book about the Kelly Criterion. And I read the first hundred, about, I think, 50 to 100 pages. And it's, you know, like gangsters and the backstory. And I thought, oh, Jesus, you know, this is a bit of a slog <laughs> um, because it just didn't interest me. But then, I, and now I'm saying this is one of the best books I've ever read on investing. So it's if you're persistent and you say to yourself, look, I'm just going to keep an open mind and read the book. Even if you put a book down and go, i got one or two really, really good points that are that you know, launch me further down the field, I think that's a really good purchase. Anything that I think adds to your knowledge base, either in a theory sense or an action sense, is usually pretty good. So like you said, you know, we teach principles because they're timeless. So you can, the, I think the advantage of our book plug is that you can pick it up at any time and go, oh, okay, I should think about these principles in the current market. And so when you use our book in alignment with a couple of historical books I'm going to recommend, you get to understand then about these patterns that we talk about because ultimately what you want to do as an investor is benefit from patterns so you can take advantage of them. And from there, you then say, all right, well, I want a book that's got solid evidence that shows these patterns exist, which is, you know, like what we talk about with market cycles and mean reversion. So I think reading history generally that you mentioned early on, I think reading history is a really great idea because it's the old, you know, it doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And I think there's some really good books out there on history that we'll talk about. And also economics, 
there's not a strong correlation between economic growth and stock market returns, but economic books are fairly useful. So you at least understand what's going on in the day-to-day markets. Yeah, that's another good uh, and important differentiation. You get some books that um, talk about history, like uh, Niall Ferguson, The Ascent of Money. And then there's others that look at specific events, like um, The Great Crash of 1929, Galbraith. And then, or I think a book that we've even talked about on one of our blogs, Devil Take the Hindmost by Chancellor, which, you know, talking about some of the... Uh, speculative manias of the past and there's a number that fits under that uh, category and also I think Michael Lewis has done some books like Liar's Poker where they look at specific things that happened historically and you might be able to to learn something for the future then you get other books which make um, quite bold predictions and I I suppose in that instance you're looking for somebody with a decent track record Mm. I mean uh, you know, not to pick on people, but uh, you get people like um, Harry Dent comes over to Australia every two years and just makes some insane predictions. But of course, uh, those are the things that generate headlines. But if you actually look back <laughs> and at book the book sales, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think he, um, I was invited to interview him some years ago and he predicted that Sydney house prices would fall 55% and the Dow Jones would go to. 3,500 or something. It's currently at about 10 times that, you know. I think, um, you know, obviously some people are just looking for a shock jock headline. Um, you know, I think uh, in the property world, Michael Yardney wrote a, a book and, you know, it was quite, it was logically based. He was saying, look at the demographics for Australia, look at the, you know, projections for Australia through the mining boom and beyond and what's going to happen to population in the cities and, yeah, and you, you could say, yes, you know, maybe he's a, a perma-bull-type character, but nevertheless a good track record of, of predicting, whereas some people are just going for the outlying predictions, um, partly because uh, when you look in the, the annual economic forecast, uh, usually people that win every every so often are people like Steve Keane because he's, he's making the most extreme prediction, which um, therefore occasionally wins. Uh, so I think, obviously, track record is important. Uh, when you are actually going through books, Steve, uh, so look, everyone will have a different approach for how to document or record what they've read. Uh, I'm personally very much of the old school. I like hard copies, bending pages, making notes in the margins. But I think um, certainly one of the things I learned at school is that if you actually read something and go, then go away and write. So, for example, if you yes, if you're trying to learn uh, vocabulary in French or German or, or Latin or whatever actually going away in the physical act of writing something massively increases your percentage likelihood of actually remembering and taking away anything useful. So maybe my approach of uh, bending the page corners and making notes in the margins isn't necessarily the best way to go. <laughs> um, it's funny, I, I used to treat, and I still do actually, I, I prefer to buy hard uh, hardcover, even if it costs me more. There was a period there where Kindle came out that I, I, I read on a Kindle, then I read on the iPad and in the Kindle app. Then about probably eight or nine years ago, I actually moved away from that. You know, you can highlight in Kindle. It's okay, but it's not... Ebooks for me are just not searchable or really easy to pick up and read and that, you know, just pick up, open a page and start reading. I take notes... I've never really handwritten, but what I do is type them on iPad, you know, like in the notes thing. I think Microsoft calls it OneNote or something. Um, I usually do that because it's not as good as running writing, but I still find it's really useful to document what I think is the important points. 
And that, I think, is the critical bit, which is which parts of the book are important enough for you to write down. Um, usually what I do these days is I write down a sort of theme of the book. So I might write, you know, three or 400 words on what the book's thesis is, and then I'll go through chapter one, write notes from it, chapter two. And I don't write notes from every chapter. I just put down stuff that I that is new to me or stuff that I think, ah, that's a really interesting point. And what people will see in my notes is I often, you know, write in brackets, oh, this relates to, you know, Robert Schiller talking about X, Y, Z, or, oh, this is Stephen Gould's, you know, punctuated equilibrium um, and those sorts of things. And all of that stuff helps me really tie it together. And the other thing I've found really useful on that is once I say to myself, I'm going to take notes, then what it does is it forces you to actually say, okay, well, what am I thinking about writing? You know, rather than just reading the book and going, oh, that was an interesting book. I think it really is about giving you the, the opportunity to say, what do I hope to get out of this book? The really good books are the ones that you read two or three times. They're the ones that, you know, like I always come back to Irrational Exuberance, right, which I'm going to talk about, of course, because it's just such a great book, you know. So I think you, it depends on what you're looking for. And you can read a, a quant book, a TA, a technical analysis book, a fundamental values book, um, you know, value investing, growth investing. So long as you know what you sort of want to get out of it, or as I said before, if you just keep reading, you'll get some points where you go, oh, that's interesting. I didn't think that was true. And it will lead you down the path of being curious, which is, you know, one of those those sort of things we were talking about in the four Fs. If you read and take notes, the notes are really great to come back to when you read a new book or you read the book the second time, you know, those sorts of things. Because I must admit, Pete, I've found great value in, oh, well, I often read a book and go, yeah, that was interesting. And then, you know, three years later, I'll go, geez, hang on, I want to go back and reread that book. And it, it gives you three or four times the value because you've got more information now and you've got more experience and stuff. So I always find going back to the first principles is really, really important. But when you're reading first principles, you don't realise they're that important. It's only until you sort of get to develop a really coherent philosophy particularly with investing, as we talk about in the, eight, in the eight principles, there's eight principles, right? You can read lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff, but really they all tie in with these eight principles and that, you know, that'll stand you in good stead over a long time. Yeah, for sure. I, I think with the Kindle thing, when I, uh, I went travelling maybe 10 or 11 years ago and uh, I was uh, or partly through necessity uh, quite big yeah. on the Kindle and plus then we lived in East Timor for a long time and there, there just there weren't any books. So I guess <laughs> you know, I guess that, that draws you That's to the handy, Kindle. Yeah. I, I think, you know, th these days uh, I prefer to try and build up a bit of a personal library of books mm. that I can refer to as and when I choose. But um, one of the things I've found over time is that these days, I'm a lot more open to new ideas. I, I think on the, the point of taking notes, I think, um, you know, one of the things I used to like doing was because I, I tend to be a real skim reader. You know, that's a real uh, that's right. a problem. I find it difficult to read detail. But sometimes if you 
I used to like going away and writing a blog, you know, about the key ideas or key themes that I'd found from a book because it just yes. kind of forces you to pay a bit more attention. If I went back um, to an earlier part in my journey, I, I did find I used to try and uh, spend a lot of time defending my approach or defending my ideas. But uh, these days, I mean, I've been invited on the Kate Bakos podcast on Friday. We're going to talk about Black Swan events and. Um, I want to talk about the Kelly criterion of, of thinking about your investing as a series of bets, you know, mm. and uh, you know, I'm really, these days I really enjoy trying to explore new ideas and just applying them to your approach and stuff instead of being defensive, saying, well, look, my way is the only way, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> because you, you can certainly, uh, when you're starting out, you can feel very defensive about people criticizing your approach. But of course, once you've been doing something for 20 years and you've found a way to make it work for you, you become much more confident in your own approach and you don't feel the need to defend it. And that's when you become open to new ideas. And reading a book might, as you said, it might trigger a new line of thought or a new area for reading. And you, you can just maintain that level of curiosity instead of just trying to narrowly uh, justify your uh, your current approach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think if you, that's it, you've hit the nail on the head there. You tend to read a book and go, I'm a Buffett investor, you know, and you defend Warren Buffett uphill and down Dale until you work out that, you know, you're not making the money. You're not compounding at 20% like Warren Buffett does. There must be something going on. Um, and then <laughs> you start to, that's when you start to broaden your horizons a bit. But it's, it's true, you know, like, and, and this is the thing we talk about again, sorry to plug it, but again with the principles is, Jim Simons does a stock market with no fundamental value, no growth investing. He's hired no finance people. They're all physicists. They're all mathematicians and made an absolute bucket load of money. And the trade is about, you know, an hour or even minutes. On the other end, you've got Warren Buffett, who holds a company for 50 years and makes a fortune. Uh, in the middle, you've got someone like Ed Thorpe, you know. So that's why I look at it these days and say, I like the Kelly criteria. This is why it suits me. I completely understand it. So that's the way I'm going to invest. And if people say, I don't like it because of X, Y, Z, and I want to do, you know, ABC, it's like, fine. There's, you know, there's a hundred ways to make money in the, the stock market. And hence the reason why, you know, I was saying at the start, if you read really widely, what you'll do is you'll just keep that open mind of saying, I'm just going to keep adding to my knowledge until, you know, what you'll find is something will percolate up where you just drift towards being a Kelly investor or you drift towards being, you know, a growth investor. Um, and I think that's really the main point. You know, the point is to say, we're not saying you've got to be like this or you've got to be like that. What we're saying is read widely. We're going to talk to you over the coming weeks about, you know, these books that influenced us. Take it or leave it sort of thing. There's plenty to choose from. Yeah, yeah, you made me laugh then when you talked about being a, a Warren Buffett investor because, like a lot of people, I used to I read all the Buffett books and uh, I was thinking, well, this all makes perfect logical sense. But then I thought, hang on a sec, this bloke's worth 160 billion, and I'm, <laughs> my 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 woolly shares don't seem to be delivering. Uh, so uh, when do I buy coke? So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just build that time machine. So, like uh, most endeavors, you'll learn as you go along and. At some point, you'll get a clearer point of the path you want to go down, whether it's property or stock market or, as you said, their fundamental analysis or yeah. technical or, or whatever the approach is. So uh, next week, we'll start out on the actual books. We'll, do, we'll pick one uh, book each uh, per episode. 
and uh, we'll also provide you with some notes. Um, you'll get some beautifully typed out notes on Stephen's books and we'd mind you, if you're lucky you might get a screenshot of a, a bent uh, dog-eared book page and some uh, pencil scribbles so we look forward to joining you next week thanks for listening today next week we'll kick off with our top 10 investment books that we recommend for reading cheers cheers thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book low rates high returns just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy the things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances Stephen and i are both on linkedin and twitter so do reach out and connect with us And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.